And will you turn in your Bibles now to the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We began our study of this book uh, about three weeks ago, and then I wasn't here in the pulpit for the last two weeks, so we are picking up where we left off about three weeks ago. I'd like to uh, begin, well, I'll, I'll be reading, really, the first 16 verses, virtually all of chapter 1. We'll save verse 17 for the next time we're together. But the book of Jonah, which you'll find on page 657, 657 of your Bibles. We'll begin here, then our second reading will come from Psalm 107, beginning at verse 23. Hear then the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. 
Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And now let us turn to the book of Psalms, the 107th, Psalm 107. beginning at verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you rule over the wind and the waves, that the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that in them is are yours, for you made them. We ask, O Lord, that this would be impressed upon each one of us of every age today, that you are the Lord, you are God. There is no other. We pray these things and ask for your blessing as we look into this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. The living God, maker of heaven and earth, the seas and all that in them is. He has resolved in his loving heart that all the nations will know him. He's determined with a fixed eternal decree sealed in the blood of his own dear son, Jesus the Christ. He has decreed that all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues hear, that they should hear, 
must hear and will hear the good news of his righteousness and his grace and his glory. This gospel to the nations was first committed to Israel. But it was committed to Israel not as an idle hobby horse for their own benefit only. This gospel and its proclamation to the nations is no small matter that we can play around the margins of our life with. The end toward which all of history is straining, the end of all these disjointed, apparently unrelated, apparently arbitrary, often trivial stories that you see in the news and hear in the news every day, the end of all those loose threads providentially knitted together into the fabric of history is that the glorious one from whom fall out all of these things providentially, the glorious one will on the last day sit enthroned in a city that is thronging with an elect people redeemed of every nation of whom the Lord Jesus Christ has lost not one. It's a finished product described in those wonderful words of Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John, who is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, sees there a great city, the holy city, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, transported as we are for a brief moment outside time, outside space, outside history, we're able to see through the prophet John, the apostle John, we're able to see from that vantage point, Christ's great redemption, his work of redemption in its finished state utterly and completely finished, the last of the elect brought in. That gate of the heavenly city, that gate of a single pearl, is now closed behind that last of God's elect. And that city that John now sees has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And he goes on to say, as he's describing what he sees, and the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. In this way, the Spirit, through John, sounds the final chord of redemption's song that's been playing, that God has been playing on the strings of history for how long, shall we say? 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 years? There in Revelation 21, we have the end, the the culmination or the climax of history itself. But of course, if that is the end that he has ordained, he has also ordained the means to that end. He's appointed the means by which alone the nations and their kings are going to know both the judgment and the redemption of God. 
Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by the word that was given to prophets, to apostles, and in these last days, to pastors and teachers who labor in the word to equip saints for the work of service among the nations for the glory of Christ. The means that God uses are often, regularly, humble means indeed. Humble means equipped by the Holy Spirit to achieve among the nations a glorious end. But as for one of them, Jonah, son of Amittai, called to bring a word of God to Nineveh, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He fled, as we saw last time, if you can think back that far to that sermon, he fled not for fear of the danger or death or difficulty. He fled not because he loathed the heathen nation or its heathen capital. Jonah is not cowardly at heart. He's not provincial in his thinking. Nothing so grossly or so obviously sinful moved this man. Nothing like that moved him to flee, and yet still he flees. Still he sins. Still he falls short of the mark, short of his calling as a prophet. Jonah sins a sin that is so subtle on his lips that in chapter 4, as we'll see, he makes a vice sound like a virtue. By that point in chapter 4, he's already returned. He's delivered that deferred, delayed message to Nineveh, the great city. He has actually gone there. He has arisen, gone to Nineveh, and he has preached that message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And as things had fallen out, the cities actually repented of its great wickedness. And God relents of the calamity he's otherwise ready to pour out on it, and he, God, doesn't do it. And there in verse 2 of the fourth chapter, Jonah himself tells the Lord who knows the heart the Lord who sees through all the duplicity, if it's there in the heart to be seen, he tells the Lord why it was he fled in the first place. What he says is, I preached the absolute certainty of one thing, judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet, Lord, even as I preached, I knew you were going to do something completely different. I preached judgment. You poured out grace, mercy, peace. And I can't reconcile this message of doom that you gave me with the redeeming mercy and love for sinners that I've come to expect of you. Wasn't this what I said while I was still in my own country, he says. Wasn't this what I said at the beginning? 
How can I preach ruin when you and your kindness are only going to move this people to repentance? One of us, either you or I, Lord, one of us is going to look like he doesn't know what he's doing. Will it be justice for Nineveh? That was my message. Or will it be mercy? How can those two agree? How can they coexist? How can you have both things in mind for this great city? It's too much for me to figure out. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, he says, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Friends, that is a theological conundrum that only the cross of Jesus Christ would finally settle. And the world was going to have to wait another eight centuries to see the two, infinite justice and infinite mercy, to see them meet at the cross and embrace. But Jonah doesn't have 800 years. He can't wait that long. He simply doesn't understand, so he flees. I've organized this first chapter under three heads, each of which is worth noting in some degree of detail. Jonah may flee, but he can't thwart God's missionary purpose of making known his grace and glory among the nations. That purpose only rolls inexorably onward. That divine purpose rolls onward, first of all, in the prophet's dereliction of verse 3. And then secondly, it rolls on through the pursuing disaster of verses 4 through 14. And it results finally in the purchased deliverance of those Gentile sailors in verses 15 and 16. Whatever is high-sounding reasons for disobedience, Jonah is now a prophet derelict of his duty. A threefold duty spelled out for him in verse 2, as we saw last time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It's a prophetic mission, as, as you have noticed. It's a prophetic mission that is rather short on detail. But if anything, that fact renders it not more complicated to fulfill, but less so less complicated. Do these three things and you're done, Jonah. This command, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, that isn't hard to understand. It's not hard to conceptualize. I'm not telling you, Jonah, to lie down on one side for hundreds of days and then turn over and lie on the other side for a long time. I'm not telling you to bake bricks and make a model of a city or bury a girdle down at the river Euphrates. I'm not telling you to marry a harlot. I'm not telling you to surrender your own beloved wife to an unmourned death. I won't ask you to give your own son the awful name Maher Shalal Hashfats. 
In other situations, friends, in other situations involving prophets, the Lord sometimes required very specific, complex, difficult tasks of his prophets. Not so in Jonah's case. How much more straightforward can he be? Arise, go to Nineveh, cry against it. Well, if you've ever decided on a sinful course of action and then later reflected on how it all came together for you in the doing of it, these words of verse 3 may have a frightfully familiar ring to them. God doesn't always withhold the means whereby we intend to sin, does he? Sin isn't hard for us. If it were hard, it wouldn't be the problem that it is. Sin isn't hard for us. It's easy. That's the problem. The means are ready at hand for us. They're available, and your plan falls into place. Your plan to sin falls into place. And that's a frightful thought. Couldn't it have all turned out differently? as Jonah arose to flee, couldn't it have turned out, for instance, that maybe he sprained his ankle on the way down to Joppa? Maybe he could have come down with shingles. Maybe he could have fallen among thieves. Couldn't the Lord have somehow waylaid him until he thought better of it? Or couldn't it have been that once he got down to the port of Joppa, there were no ships bound for where he wanted to go. Couldn't he have gotten to the ticket office down at Joppa and been told, well, sorry, sir, we, you just missed the last ship of the season bound for Tarshish. We don't have anything leaving here except uh, for a caravan for Nineveh leaving in 10 minutes. Couldn't it have worked out so that when he goes to pay the fare, He's a dollar short or a shekel short. Couldn't it have turned out that they don't take Israelite coin for payment and the currency exchange kiosk is closed for the season? Couldn't he have accidentally left his passport back there in Samaria or back in Gathhefer or somewhere else he couldn't find it? But it's not that way for Jonah. And it's not that way generally for each of us either. When we're intent on sinning, we find a way. God allows us the desires of our heart. If only those hearts were fixed on obeying him. If only... But Jonah's experience, as it's described here, is like the grim, inexorable tolling of the bell that tolls for thee. With every line, the derelict prophet is one significant step closer to his doom. He does not turn back. He will not turn back. So, he tells us, he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
Throughout the Bible, the Lord's sovereign power exercised over the atmospheric elements serves as an indicator to us of his greatness, his sheer greatness. This is patently true in Old and New Testaments alike. We'll sing about it very soon in the 107th Psalm. If you turn over a few pages from that 107th Psalm, there it is again for the slow of heart to believe in Psalm 135, verses 5 to 7. The psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all deeps, he causes the vapors to rise from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. The Lord does that. I was reminded when I was first studying this, I was reminded of God's inscrutable sovereignty. Not long ago, as I saw television images of uh, a tornado's destruction, devastation, in a neighborhood just outside Detroit, Michigan. In that news story, I saw an aerial view of a single street in a residential neighborhood that numbered scores, if not hundreds, of individual homes. And the video shot from the helicopter, the shot framed three contiguous residential lots, three lots all together. And here on houses number one and number three, there were shingles missing, there were windows broken, but that's it. But between those two houses, significantly damaged but still standing, numbers one and number three, between them, the camera focused on a pile of household belongings strewn across an otherwise empty foundation. Not a trace of house number two could be found. The structure had been completely carried away. It wasn't there except for some clothes lying there on the bare foundation. Now, ours isn't to pry into why that might be. What might be the secret purpose of God or for so totally obliterating that one house while leaving those to its right and to its left livable again? Those secret things belong to the Lord. The point here is that God sent that Michigan disaster according to his good pleasure. And whatever his secret purposes might have been for the family that once lived there, the winds once stored in his treasury had found their mark with surgical precision. And that's the way it is with Jonah here. Most of this first chapter spells out for us in narrative clear and compelling the pursuing disaster. The pursuing disaster, the disaster that in this case pursues the sinner, this derelict, delinquent prophet of Israel who was of a mind that he had to understand, that he had to be able to sort it all out, had to sign off on it before he was going to obey 
Beloved, we don't know the Lord if we begin to imagine that he is looking for our consent. He manifestly is not looking for our consent. Let's notice two things about this disaster that pursues the sinner. It takes the Bible to inform us of these things because nature alone, apart from divine revelation, might lead us to believe and does lead some people to believe otherwise. Nature leads us to believe that natural events are just impersonal. That things just happen. You, you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time and look what happens to you. You're the victim of circumstance. That's what nature teaches us to believe. The Bible tells us something altogether different. See how the prophet puts it. There was a great storm on the sea. And there was, that's true. But is that the whole story? Was it merely the mathematics of meteorology at work that day? Impersonal forces of atmospheric pressure and temperature and moisture consequently put into motion. In motion they were, but consider why. Jonah fills out the rest of the story for us. It was because the Lord hurled a storm. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. didn't just happen. So the first lesson to be drawn from this pursuing disaster is that providence is personal. Whatever else they may be, the sufferings that we endure aren't the chance events that nature and natural man try to persuade us they are. It's not that way. We face the purposeful dealing of the one holy God living and true with sinful men. And these things that happen to us in life, these disasters that pursue us, these things befall us either as we are found to be in Christ or found to be outside of him. Outside of Jesus Christ, these storms not only ruin us, but let me be bold about this. They are meant to ruin us. Meant to bring us down. Meant to show us the reality of our desperate need. That's what the storms of life are meant to do for one outside of Christ. Because the fact is, the storm discloses that I didn't really need that house I was living in. I didn't need that ship I was traveling in. I didn't need that job, that help, that wealth that was taken away from me. Those things are the very vines that grow tightly around the heart of sinners and choke out the life, choke out the spiritual life of the unconverted. You may enjoy these things. Nothing wrong with enjoying the things God gives you. You should enjoy them and give thanks to God for them while you have them. But you don't need the things that the storm destroys. What you need is Christ Jesus, Savior, King, 
great shepherd of the sheep. Outside him is ruin and only ruin. In him, united to him by a lively faith, these disasters, natural and man-made, disasters that ruin others are the very sufferings meant to conform us more closely to his image. Him who suffered before us, long before us, yet without sin. These sufferings, these storms of life, aren't impersonal. They are tokens of a love that won't let us go. The second lesson to be learned from this disaster pursuing Jonah is just how broad and immediate can be the consequences of our sin. It's just as Moses warned the Reubenites and the Gadites as to their military duty to support their more westward-bound brothers in Numbers 32, 23, as they were preparing to go in and take possession of the Promised Land. The Reubenites and the Gadites, you remember, and half the tribe of Manasseh decided, you know, we like it on this side of the Jordan River. There are grassy fields and pastures here, and you know that we are tribes with livestock. This is just the place for us. But Moses warned them about going forth to support their brothers as they went into their inheritance. And Moses told them, if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Are you inclined to think that you can live for a long time in that secret sin you cherish? Who will know? Who's going to know? Well, friend, God knows. He knows right now. He knows all about it. And he may sovereignly be pleased to uh, let you cherish it secretly for another week or maybe another 20 years or 30 years. Or he may uncover it tomorrow. He uncovered Jonah's sin to a ship's crew and passengers who had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Gentiles they are. They're Gentiles and they are perfect strangers to Jonah. They're in mortal peril for his sin. The Israelite, the man of God, they're in peril because of him. He sleeps down in the hold while they're outside on the deck, trimming the sails, straining at the oars, finally jettisoning the cargo to lighten the ship, jettisoning the cargo whose safe delivery to Tarshish occasioned the trip in the first place. That all goes overboard at tremendous loss to the owners, useless to anyone ever again, all while the sinner who caused it all slept. Beloved, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure the day is going to come when it impacts others in concentric ripples extending far beyond your power to contain it. The ripples of Jonah's sin are now breaking over the bow of the ship 
and were thought to have broken it. The consequences of Jonah's sin are broad. They are impacting more people than he ever might have imagined. They included also this personal humiliation that I don't think is paralleled in all of Scripture until that moment of the third denial of the Apostle Peter when Jesus locked eyes with Peter in the courtyard of the high priest and Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly for the personal shame of it all. And so might Jonah have done now. Because down into the hold of the ship where he sleeps, now rushes not some steward or stevedore, not some nameless fellow traveler whose words no one has any reason to pay any attention to. This is the captain of the ship or the master of the ship who comes to Jonah as he's sleeping there down in the hold. This is the man whose word everyone on board is bound to obey. The captain's word is law on that ship. And here he is, a Gentile, a heathen, steeped in the idolatry, first of his own pagan nation, wherever that was, and then in the briny superstitions of the sea. He's a pagan. How is it, he says, that you're sleeping? Well, the storm isn't over. The storm rages on. The storm engulfs this little ship and the frantic energies of every soul on board. And then there were other vessels on that sea, no doubt. Who knows what other vessels on the sea might be likewise tossed, maybe even lost, because of one errant prophet running away from his work. The storm rages on. But our time is gone today. We'll discover next time the purchase price. The purchase price of that vessel's deliverance that for a man's sin, a man must die. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do not often think of your word as an action story, but how glad we are that among your law, statutes, ordinances, you give us narrative, compelling and clear about your work in redeeming the nations for your glory. We thank you for this book of Jonah. And we thank you that even from the failures and foibles of the prophet, we, in our age, thousands of years later, can learn. We pray that you would teach us obedience, that you would teach us immediacy in our obedience to your word, and that this would not be a matter of mere external actions, but that you would place within us hearts welling up 
with love for you, welling up with a desire, a glowing desire and fire to obey you, to serve you, to stand for you as lights in a dark place. For you have, in Christ Jesus, constituted us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Grant that we might so behave, so conduct ourselves, so speak, and so think as people redeemed and transformed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.